0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the looming indictments of Donald Trump, the first time in history for an American president, following an invitation from the Manhattan DA for him to testify before a grand jury. Since this is a formality that precedes an indictment, if Trump refuses to testify to avoid lying, which he will surely engage in, then an indictment will follow. Joining us is Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and professor of law at the Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, white-collar crime and corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she is the host of the new podcast, Booked up with Gen Tau. Then we look into the dire consequences for the United States from the weaponization of our debt by the Republicans that could soon lead to a default which would stiff our allies and be the greatest self inflicted wound to our national security in history, as well as a gift to Russia and China and rogue states, since it would take away our ability to freeze assets along with destroying the dollar as a global reserve currency. Joining us is Catherine Russ, a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis, who worked for the Obama administration's Council on Economic Advisors as senior Economist for international trade and finance. She is a faculty research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research, International Trade and Investment Group and has been a visiting scholar at the central banks of Germany, Portugal, and France, and the Federal Reserve Banks of St. Louis and San Francisco. We will discuss her article with Mary Lovely at CNN, Republicans are playing with fire. Then finally we'll examine Russian pressure and instability surrounding Ukraine, with demonstrations in Georgia, destabilization in Moldova, and pressure on the dictator in Belarus to join the war against Ukraine. And speak with an expert on the region, Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He is the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976-1992. to 1992. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now, Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and professor of law at the Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, white collar crime and corruption. And she's testified as a banking law expert before Congress, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she's the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Taub.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a lot of buzz now about the fact that the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, has invited Trump to testify uh, before a grand jury. Uh, Now, that sounds sort of polite in a way, but it's not. It's like (laughs) cocking a loaded pistol. In other words, you're invited to testify before a grand jury, and if you tell a lie, you're in big trouble. But if you don't come, then you'll be indicted. That's the way New York law is set up, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's actually a little more courteous in other jurisdictions, like in the federal court world, you don't even need to invite the person who's the uh, you know the target. So this is, you know, it's a courtesy, but it's the opposite of the godfather. You know, in those films, someone makes you an offer you can't refuse. This is an offer he must refuse. There's no reason why he would appear before this grand jury.
0: So what are you saying then, Jen, that he's going to be indicted, that he's not going to want to show up?
1: (laughs) Ha ha ha. Well, I think there's still a couple missing pieces. Uh, Michael Cohen, who is a star witness, needs to appear before the grand jury. Um, Based on how that goes, it's going to be up to Alvin Bragg whether he brings this, uh, he asks the grand jury to indict. And uh, it looks like, you know, it looks like everything is moving in that direction. You know, the train has left the station, but you never know what could happen before it arrives. You know, we've seen so many ways that Donald Trump has dodged um, accountability. And who knows what could happen between next week um, and the moment it's time to ask the grand jury for a charge. You know, I'm just not going to hold my hopes up, honestly.
0: But just in terms of background, this is all about a $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels, a porn star uh, that was made by Michael Cohen in October of 2016, just before the elections. And it was clearly hush money to shut (laughs) her up because she's about to go public about having had sex with Donald Trump, who needless to say is a married man. So
1: yes, and not only was he married at the time, but I think his then current wife, I guess his wife now, Melania was home with the with the baby at the time.
0: So we also know that Michael Cohen has gone to jail for this very same. Mm-hmm. He wrote wrote the check, but Trump reimbursed him, right?
1: Right. And so let's let's back up and say this. Number 1, um having an extramarital affair is still legal in the United States. Number 2, Paying someone a kind of settlement fee uh, to buy their silence um, in exchange for buying someone's story, which is how this is arranged. Again, that part, legal, might be unsavory for some. Um, The part that could make all of this unlawful, um, not just at the federal level, where Michael Cohen ends up pleading guilty under duress, is that New York State has laws that forbid uh, misdemeanors and felonies to falsify business records and in this instance um, that's one of the statutes at play but also in order to transform that misdemeanor of falsifying business records and I'll talk about how we did that into a felony um, you would have to have the falsification being for the purpose of hiding some other underlying crime. So in this case the argument is that um, Donald Trump's business organizations, instead of saying this is a reimbursement to Michael Cohn <clears throat> for paying Stormy Daniels for her silence, it acted as if the business records wrote it that wrote it down as if it were for legal services rendered when it was not. That's one. Um, and two, um, the part about this being done to cover up an underlying crime that would be um, a, a um, unlawful campaign contribution. And here the thinking is that um, the the gift that that either Michael Cohen or Donald Trump was making um, to his campaign was not disclosed as a in kind contribution. In other words, we're uh, not in kind. I'm sorry. In this case, a monetary contribution, the hundred and thirty thousand dollars, which would exceed campaign limit uh, contributions for you know for Cohen or even for um, Trump, um, would be in excess of the campaign finance limits, and it was a gift to his candidacy. This happens in October, right around the time the, um, the, that, that uh, the, the audio is released from um, the Hollywood Access uh, television show where he is bragging about sexually assaulting people. So at this particular moment, it was highly important to make sure that something that would have been a very interesting story that Daniels could have sold to the public was kept quiet.
0: And of course, Cohen pled guilty on eight counts, two of which were for campaign finance violations, yep. which are felonies, right? And is there a statute of limitations on any of
2: that?
1: Well, here's the thing. There was the federal law. There's the federal law statute of limitations, and then there's New York. And remember, you I'm sure you remember that someone named Individual One was named in the federal um, documents, the... Um, the indictment and the, or actually, I guess it would have been an information because he ends up entering a plea. Um, but he, you know, individual one was Trump, and so there is a five-year statute of limitations on most federal crimes, including this campaign finance one. Um, uh, but you know, it's the question is five years from when, and some of the payments were still being made, reimbursement payments were still being made to Michael Cohen, even um, even you know into. I think it was well after the fall of 2016, um, and I don't know how far they would have gone, um, but I do think it's quite likely the statute of limitations ran, not just because Bill Barr decided not to prosecute, but because Merrick Garland made that decision himself as well. At the state level, it's pretty interesting, Ian, in that due to um, the COVID pandemic, a lot of the the statutes of limitations were put on hold. Like You talk about tolling the clock, right? So things are well within the state law statute of limitations for both the um, the the alleged, you know, business falsification and campaign finance um, violation.
0: And there's the other issue of $150,000 payment to stop the National Enquirer to kill a story about uh, Karen McDougal, an affair that she claimed she had with Trump, and a fairly long affair. And I think one donor out here in California ended up taking the fall did he not so that's another seedy story there that's wrapped into this but let's just in the last couple of minutes talk about about who's testifying and who will testify Stormy Daniels would love to testify (laughs) Right. And she wrote a book about describing in excruciating detail what it was like having sex with Donald Trump, which I would not recommend. I wouldn't recommend reading or or (laughs) doing the act, is what you're saying, yes. But already Kellyanne Conway, Hope Hicks have appeared before this grand jury, Mm -hmm. along with Mm -hmm. Jeffrey McConney, uh, the Mm -hmm. controller of the Trump organization. So they're building a case, clearly.
2: Right,
1: right. I mean, if you bring... Um, you know, it's it, it's it's a good strategy to bring um, people inside of Donald Trump's circle in the campaign. People like Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hicks, of course, later served roles in the White House. These are people who have remained loyal even to this day to Donald Trump. So they testified before a grand jury. And it, to the extent that what they already said matches up with what Michael Cohn is going to testify to that that's very strong and powerful evidence for the grand jury. And we see that Donald Trump was, you know, going crazy, um, you know, throwing ketchup against the wall metaphorically over on Truth social the other night, actually claiming that he never had an affair with uh, stormy Daniels. It's just not, not believable or credible. Um, I just don't, you know, I just don't see um, how they don't uh, already have evidence, you know, to that, I mean, apparently Kellyanne Conway was the one in contact with Michael Cohen, where he where he informed her that everything was all, all said and done. She knew what this was about. Um, of course, she was not in the room um, when the you know infidelity happened, but she certainly knew the purpose for those payments. And so, you know, I do see if all goes well, um, justice will be served and there will be an indictment in this case. But you know, I've been waiting for a while, so I tend to just kind of. Wait a little more to see if, if actually that that does occur. I mean, I'm hoping, Ian, that someone over um, in Washington is ashamed by this uh, because these charges should have been brought at the federal level. And I'm hoping someone like Jack Smith um, gets his act together on whatever he is working on, whether it's the documents from the he kept uh, the top secret documents, double. Pilfered and refused to give back in Florida, or it's the insurrection. It's really shameful that we have to have a, you know, the Manhattan DA bring a case um, or any case against a former president of the United States because our current Attorney General was too cowardice to, out of the box, start working on these things when he first, uh, he first, be, you know, took office uh, many years ago. Right. Two years ago.
0: <laughs> well. It looks like the Manhattan DA might well be the first to indict a president It's never happened in history. Uh, and, yep. of course, you mentioned Donald Trump's, <laughs> I never had sex with Stormy Daniels. What does that uh, remind you of? Bill yeah, Clinton, right? right? <laughs> yes, right.
1: <laughs> right. It depends upon what the meaning of the word affair is, I think, in this case.
0: Right. Well... Uh, you've got the Atlanta DA. You've also yep. got the Trump organization with the uh, New York Attorney General, yep. and you've got Jack Smith. So Trump's obviously got some problems uh, The sharks—he's in the water, and the sharks are circling. So that
1: civil case you mentioned from the uh, Attorney General of New York, Donald is is also personally mentioned in that case, right. which could easily convert over to a criminal case. Um, but you know, we shall see. Right. But, yeah, you, but here's the thing, Ian doesn't matter if he's indicted it's going to be i think unfortunately a bit of a letdown just like when joe biden won the election and we thought we'd be so happy and donald just kept denying 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 and then created an insurrection he's going to do the same spin on these indictments
2: right
1: right? he's going to be like they don't mean anything justice doesn't mean anything these people hate me and then there will be violence unfortunately I, i i hate to say this but this seems like it's his pattern and really, the only hope has always been that the Republican Party got their act together and stopped this, but they—they they haven't, and it's kind of too late because the party is now, you know, Trump's party. It's an authoritarian, violence, and you know, and and uh, falsehood-based regime. I just hope um, this gets turned around somehow. Um, I, I don't see it happening during Trump's lifetime. He will never give in.
0: Well, Jennifer Tab, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and professor of law at the Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, white collar crime and corruption, and she's testified as a banking law expert before Congress, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she's the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub. We're going to take a station break and back looking into the dire consequences for the United States from the weaponization of our debt by the Republicans that could soon lead to a default which would stiff our allies and be the greatest self-inflected wound to our national security in history. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Catherine Russ, a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis, who worked for the Obama Administration's Council of Economic Advisors as senior economist for international trade and finance. She's a faculty research associate in the National Bureau of Economic Research's International Trade and Investment Group, and she has been a visiting scholar at the central banks of Germany, Portugal, and France, and the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis and San Francisco. And she has an article at CNN: Republicans are playing with fire. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Russ.
3: Thank you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Catherine. And. Your article uh, comes out at an important moment, of course. The U.S. uh, will default on its debt as early as July, or perhaps even earlier. But we have an example of what you're writing about in terms of warning us about the consequences. There have been pictures seen around the world of the Chinese official Wang Wang Yi brokering a peace between the Saudi Arabians and the Iranians. And this is a big diplomatic win for China and to some extent, I don't know whether you could call it a black eye for the United States, but it certainly marginalizes the United States. So this is a precursor, is it not, of what would happen if we default on our debt, which would be a massive self-inflicted wound to our national security. And as you point out in your article, it would be a huge win for Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping.
3: I think that peace anywhere is a win for everyone and the white house statement on this agreement um, between iran and saudi arabia really underscored that so um, you know to the degree that uh, President Xi is contributing to that, we have to consider that a plus for the world, including the United States. But you're absolutely right. This threat of default really plays into a very strong campaign by Putin, by Xi, to portray the United States as a source of injustice and chaos in the world broadly. So it, it's it creates a national security threat for us where really none should exist.
0: And in terms of Earlier reports of she's visit to Saudi Arabia and statements from Mohammed bin Salman, they're, they're toying with the idea that they will no longer pay for oil in dollars, and dollars are the reserve currency and give the United States a huge advantage. That, again, would be a casualty of a default, would it not?
3: Absolutely. So we've seen a very gradual erosion of the dominance of the dollar in global Um, transactions over the past few decades. Um, Barry Eichengreen has documented that in the Journal of International Economics. But it's been a very gradual thing, and the dollar is still, by a large margin, the dominant currency um, in global transactions. And so what, what I mean by that is exactly what you're describing. So oil, for instance, is priced in dollars for for most um, transactions in the world. Um, Many transactions between countries that don't use the dollar as their domestic currency, they price their import and export contracts, their cross-border loan contracts in dollars, why is that? Partly because people have so much faith in the dollar, and a lot of that is supported by their faith in U.S. Treasury securities, which are denominated in dollars and very important in official reserve holdings of dollars that countries keep on hand in case there's a crisis.
0: So, given that we'll be stiffing a lot of uh, China, for example, I think China sold off a bunch of its U.S. Treasuries uh, at the end of 2022. But we're not only stiffing China, we would be stiffing Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan to the tune of about $2 trillion, and other allies, Australia, Canada, France, Great Britain, and Germany of $1 trillion in terms of the treasuries that they hold. So explain to us the whole point of what US treasuries mean and why people buy them.
3: People buy them because they know this. So, so if a bond, so a treasury bond is an IOU. It means that you lend the United States money right now and we'll pay you back in the future. And so because people have so much confidence that we'll pay them back, it's the premier safe asset for the world. So countries maintain um maintain precautionary holdings of dollars you know if something goes awry they want to be able to um, have a reserve they hold those reserves in the form of u.s treasury securities and other dollar denominated assets so if we default on these that would really erode the popularity of the dollar dollar denominated assets but um, especially u.s treasury securities as the world's premier safe asset. And that means that it will become less liquid. It will become less popular um, to buy and sell and to use to um, index contracts uh, for cross-border transactions. Again, like imports, exports, cross-border loans.
0: And another point that you make in your article at CNN, Catherine Russ, Republicans Are Playing With Fire, is that One of the most useful tools now in geopolitics, short of military action, which, given the nuclear powers around the world, it's more often than not restrained, although uh, we do have a war going on in Ukraine, and uh, there have been nuclear threats coming from Putin. In a curious way, he's using nuclear threats as a a shield behind which he conducts a conventional war. But nevertheless, if you default, you undermine the U.S.'s best weapon, which is freezing assets of rogue regimes like Russia. And, for example, the European banks alone are holding, I think, about half a trillion in Russian assets, which would probably be used to reconstruct Ukraine, uh, assuming that there's some kind of a peace deal and then this terrible war ends. So elaborate on that, if you will, because that, to me, is a really important point.
3: Absolutely. The dollar's dominance is what makes U.S. sanctions so powerful. We can almost entirely shut down a country's transactions with the rest of the world because most of them are denominated in dollars. And this has been a very powerful um, force in um you know, making Russia feel some impact um, domestically from its choice to uh, invade the Ukraine. Uh, It's also been a very powerful weapon in the past in bringing um, Iran to the negotiating table on um, nuclear arrangements. Although I know, you know, I know there are vicissitudes in that long and ongoing process, but it's still been uh, a key mechanism to gain leverage it's, it's it cannot be overstated I mean if you think about China and Taiwan and maybe and China whatever hesitancy that China has to invade Taiwan may be in part because of the threat of sanctions like Russia faced so the dominance of the dollar as a national security um, uh, protection it just it can't be Understated, and if people lose their confidence in the dollar because we stop paying back U.S. Treasury bonds, wow, that would just be such an unforced error. It would play exactly into Xi and Putin's hands. Absolutely.
0: So walk us through then, Catherine. What would happen if international investors got out of dollars? Wouldn't they turn to China?
3: Maybe, maybe not. Um, so the renminbi is becoming uh, an alternative currency. So if you look at that that work by Barry Eichengreen, he does show that um, use of the renminbi is increasing relative to the dollar. Um, it's still limited because uh, Beijing largely controls most um, transactions in foreign exchange markets. So th- so if you want to exchange renminbi for other stuff, you often have to go through official channels, official clearinghouses that are located in countries around the world. There are pools of renminbi that are held in completely private um, settings where they can be exchanged without you know, government oversight or intervention, but it's still pretty tightly controlled. So so the, it's, I mean, the renminbi isn't, I, it's hard to imagine it as being um, positioned for immediate ascension, but certainly it would be, um, its strength as an alternative would rise, no question about it, if the um, confidence in the dollar were undermined by a default, like the one that's being threatened on the national debt right now, which is composed of U.S. treasury bonds
0: but wouldn't the world turn to china in terms of supply chains i mean we've already had that problem through covid and wouldn't that come back with a vengeance
3: well the the relationship to supply chains is more is probably more one of confidence. So while the US is trying to pursue a strategy of friend-shoring, it really has to induce other countries to invest in beefing up their supply chain relationships with the United States. So investment always takes some confidence in what's going to happen in the future. If the United States is welching out on its most basic promise, to pay people back what they promised to pay them um, already, like with their IOUs, these bonds, that would really undermine any kind of influence the U.S. might have in negotiations to promote friend-shoring, um, to promote any kind of uh, redirection and strengthening of resilience of supply chains.
0: But we need new investments, do we not, for new energy, et cetera.
3: Yeah, any, any shift in supply chains to make them more resilient or uh, more reliable or to um, redirect them toward allies would require new investment. That's a long-term venture. It's a risk that people take. You can't just start producing stuff. You have to create factories or other kinds of facilities to um, set up these supply chains. So asking people to engage in these long-term risks When we can't even maintain our most basic core promises um, to repay our national debt when they hold our bonds, that is just, yeah, I think that would really, (laughs) really, really hurt our um, ability to uh, redirect any kind of supply chains or enhance their resilience um, in the hands of, of allied nations.
0: So let's talk then about the GOP's weaponization of our debt, which, of course, you made clear will do untold damage to our credibility and our, our ability to fulfill our commitments. We also have this battle over the, uh, over the budget, which President Biden announced his budget on Thursday. There's a sort of a game going on where McCarthy, the Speaker, says, let's talk about it. And Biden obviously wants him to go public and publish a budget saying, well, you know, show me it's almost like that movie, show me your money so that seems to be going on and it's hard to know the extent to which budgets are political documents or economic documents or where (laughs) one begins and the other ends, but that's clearly what's happening now I guess what you're arguing is the time is now to raise taxes and cut spending uh, and get real, right?
3: Well, if people are serious about deficit reduction, that's the only way to do it—to raise revenues and cut spending. That's the case in any business, any organization. It's the same for the United States. We can't escape that. This is the hard work of governance: negotiating budget priorities, negotiating these final allocations and tax uh, tax rates. You can't—you can, you just really can't escape that by threatening to default on the national debt. I mean the debt ceiling it's a statutory artifact. It shouldn't even be, it shouldn't even be a thing. It's just a result of some old legislation that people had no idea it would be used in this manner. And we really have to get away from it. Both parties have threatened this in the past, but it's becoming a habit among the GOP right now. And we really have to get um, away from that and get on the hard work of governance, which involves negotiation, compromise, and realistic budget priorities we might not have the same budget priorities across different political groups but we need to be able to negotiate our budget priorities come to a compromise that is governance
0: and you're talking about something that happened back in 1917 during world war one and this was a, a bill that was passed that nobody ever thought that it would, would end up being used as a weapon right it's an antique and an anomaly
1: It is an
3: anomaly, and and what it does is distract attention away from the real work of governance, which is creating a budget that we can enact into law altogether. Everyone has to work together. Like No one party can do it by themselves. The American people have split um, governance uh, in in the federal government, so they've they've split uh, this across parties. And so we all have to work together.
0: But given how, how catastrophic it would be and what a self-inflicted wound this would be to our national security, who has the leverage here? Because somebody has to be an adult, and I assume at the end of the day the adult would have to be Biden if the Republicans just play hardball and do what former Republican Speaker uh, John Boehner referred to as legislative terrorism. So who's got the, uh, the leverage here, the terrorists or the adults?
3: I'm not sure it's I'm not sure the word leverage is relevant before there's a a realistic alternative presented. So far the alternatives presented seem to imply a 25% cut in spending across all categories or if we keep Um, If we protect defense, uh, Social Security, Medicare, then it's going to involve, uh, I've heard numbers, 70% and 85% cuts across everything else. You know, that's money for bridges, flood control, uh, all kinds of things that, that people depend on every day. that would do quite a bit to our domestic security as well. So I I just, it's not clear whether a fully fleshed out realistic proposal that, I mean, that's why you really have to talk about a budget as opposed to just that you don't want to raise taxes or just what you won't cut, but you want to cut everything out. Like, it's not really realistic the way all of these things are coming out, unless you put it all into a budget, add up Everything and make sure that the total is something that that you can live with and that's co- um, consistent with your commitment to reduce the national debt or the deficit um, and the debt and eventually the debt. So it's 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 hard to you know it's hard to talk about leverage before there's any like real counter proposal.
0: Well, Biden his proposal does reduce the deficit and the debt. But we don't have one from the Republicans. That's, that's the situation now, isn't it? Just in closing.
3: Yes, that's exactly what I mean by it. we don't see a counterproposal yet. So we don't know if any of the priorities that are being expressed um, by the Republicans in response to the White House budget are realistic or not. We won't know if they're realistic or not until we see them all written down, all the I's dotted, T's crossed in a full budget proposal. That's why a full budget proposal is necessary so that you can see if all the numbers add up in what people are demanding.
0: Well, Catherine Russ, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
3: Thanks to you, Ian, I'm just always so happy talking with you. I I love your questions and, and your thoughtful analysis.
0: Well, thank you, Catherine. And again, I've been speaking with Catherine Russ, a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis, who worked for the Obama Administration's Council of Economic Advisers as a senior economist for international trade and finance. She is a faculty research associate in the National Bureau of Economic Research, International Trade and Investment Group, and has been a visiting scholar in at the central banks of Germany, Portugal, and France, and the Federal Reserve Banks of St. Louis and San Francisco. And she has an article at CNN, Republicans are playing with fire. We're gonna take a brief station break. We're back with an examination of Russian pressure and instability surrounding Ukraine with demonstrations in Georgia, destabilization in Moldova, and pressure on the dictator in Belarus to join the war against Ukraine.
2: Inflation's getting higher Said hard on the buyer, unemployment on the rise, gasoline issue filled with lines, rent being paid late, please, let the dollar circulate, let the dollar circulate.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is the Giants and their city, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln
4: Mitchell. Thank you for having me back on.
0: Well, thanks for joining us again, Lincoln. And I wanted to talk to you about Russia's FSB's activities. Obviously, Russia's at war and they've deployed the FSB in the the military. And we hear a lot about how poorly the military are doing, but we're not uh, really, we don't quite know the full scope of the FSB activities. I know that, for example, they have uh, roaming assassination squads that they send throughout Ukraine that are doing horrendous stuff. But they're also very active in Moldova and they're also active in Georgia, where there's just been some massive demonstrations against what looked like a kind of a Russian-type operation on the part of the government to censor the press and also basically make the foreign press sign as foreign agents. Very, Very similar to the kind of legislation that Putin has introduced in Russia. So let's start with Georgia. What's going on in Georgia?
4: Well, this is, I think, a reasonably complicated situation. The current Georgian government, which has won a series of elections going back to 2012, in what would have generally be considered freely, free and fair elections, where they ousted a kind of neoconservative authoritarian government or semi-authoritarian government, has over the last years been since the very beginning been criticized by their opponents for being pro-Russia, at the same time has pursued a pro-European and pro-Western policy towards NATO and towards the European Union. However, and this is a big however, in recent years that's begun to change. And particularly with the Ukraine war, where Georgia was not – enthusiastically supporting, to put it nicely, the, the sanctions that the United States and our European allies put on, on Russia, um, partially because this government simply, I don't think, has this kind of visceral uh, support for Ukraine that a lot of countries do, and I can explain why in a second, and also because Georgia was invaded by Russia in 2008, and when that happened, the world did nothing. So when I was last in Georgia, which was about 10 months ago, People told me, you know, very high ranking people said, look, our view was that if George, if things go poorly in Ukraine, Putin might want a quick win and invade us again. And other people said, if things if pu- things go well in Ukraine for, for Putin, he may get confident and invade us again. So that fear of that Russian invasion was very real. In But since that war, we've seen this government move substantively away from, well, since they came into power, this government has done very little to move democracy forward. And this particular law, which you described, it goes a little further than that because it's not just media. So it's not just someone who works for, I don't know, a foreign media operation. It's one domestic Georgian media that gets 20 percent or more of its funding from outside sources, which might be USAID or European assistance, as well as non-governmental organizations that might be acting as watchdog organizations, watching the government or in some cases delivering services. Now, we should – you spoke about the FSB. We should note that Russian money is going into Georgia all the time to support pro-Russia groups, pro-Russia organizations, but the Russian money, you know, that's not coming in the form of grants where there are applications and where it's recorded and where it's, you know, made public. American and European money is mostly in Georgia through those kind of grants, which are already made public. The Georgia Young Lawyers Association, just to pick one example. You know, they receive foreign funding. It's on their website. They're not trying to conceal anything. But the fear is if they have to register as foreign agents, they will face repression from the government and they will be identified always as foreign agents, which will undermine the work that they do. And Georgia is effectively a one party system, so the NGO sector is really the only check on the government. So,
0: what about the economic ties? I mean, you've got all those Russians that fled, Uh, a lot of them went into Georgia fled the draft, and fled the war. And on the other hand, the there's an enormous amount of trade going on, continuing right between... I mean, that's how Russia's getting around sanctions, aren't they? They're using the stands in Georgia and other countries, who are, and Armenia, they're all working with the Russians to avoid the Western sanctions.
4: I don't think it's quite that simple in the case of Georgia. Georgia has been kind of half in on the sanctions and half out. I mean, the prime minister of Georgia, who is... I would describe as not politically deft enough to handle this situation, did say very early on that these sanctions hurt us a lot more than they hurt Russia. Right. In other words, if Georgia participates, it really damages the Georgian economy, which is very reliant on trade on Russia with on trade with Russia. So there is that side of it. They have kind of half participated with in the sanctions, but not fully and certainly not enthusiastically. But this isn't you know, a Central Asian country or, or Iran or something, which is just you know trying to work. Or on the other hand, there are countries like India that remain massive markets, or China, of course, um, for for Russia. So, so that kind of is a little complicated. Now, now the issue with these Russians coming in, I mean, if you read Masha Gessen in the New Yorker, you think they're all in there to read Pushkin and Tolstoy, but a lot of these people are there to avoid the draft, and a lot of them are there just because they want to go somewhere and spend their money. I mean, when I was in in Georgia. You know, first of all, there's graffiti. I mean, I remember distinctly seeing in English, so meant for foreign eyes, uh, all Russians, no Russians are welcome, whether good or bad. So not the greatest syntax, but you got the point. There's a lot of resentment because a lot of these I heard stories of Russians coming in and talking about how great their troops were doing in Ukraine. So there's a lot of tension between these Russians coming in and the Georgians who, for good historic reasons, are not comfortable with a lot of Russians coming to their country for whatever reason.
0: So let's then turn to Moldova there is a sizable pro-Russian population there and Zelensky warned uh, some time back that there were Russian provocateurs coming in or pro-Russian provocateurs coming in to stir up trouble and and somehow the enclave of Russians in Transnistria that borders between Moldova and Ukraine it's a sort of sliver there on the east has Russian troops now there's even a possibility that the Ukrainians may invade. The Russians are saying that's going to happen. But what's happening there, do you think? That seems to be a possibility of a new front.
4: Yes. And the Russian military in Ukraine, I mean, I think we have to hold two ideas in our head at the same time. Let's start with this. They are being humiliated, right? They did not expect to be in this war the way they are. They did not expect to take the casualties. They did not expect Ukraine to be able to fight back as effectively as it has. On the other hand, Russia could still win. And I think Putin's strategy here is to fight not just in a lot of places, but in a lot of dimensions. Now, I I mean, I talked to a lot of people in the Georgian, uh, in Georgia and in the Georgian government. I met with the president this week uh, who is not part of the government there in in that way. And no one's really sure. You know, there's a lot of accusations, but no one's really sure the depths of the connections between the Georgian government and Russia. But even that perception, helps Putin, right? The perception that there's that he's gaining ground in Georgia, that he's gaining ground in Moldova, all of that helps Russia and hurts Ukraine. And that's always been the way Putin has done this. It's always been a multi-layered war, not just, you know, it's been a lot of, you know, guns and, and soldiers, but also cyber, also the politics. And Putin is continuing to do this. Is this war gonna open up a, a front in in Belarus? I mean, in Moldova, I don't know, but you know, uh, the Russian uh FSB the Russian foreign Ministry the Russian media now is saying that because of this uh unrest in Georgia the Georgian government is going to have is going to uh, plan a, an an offensive attack on uh, on Abkhazia which is a de jure part of Georgia that's de facto under Russian control and they're doing that just to stir up problems in Georgia and the region so they're going to keep doing a lot of fighting on a lot of different levels and it's going to be tougher and tougher for, for Ukraine
0: in terms of, though, moving on the other front in the north with Belarus, it's obviously Lukashenko, the dictator there, is, is playing a, quite an interesting dance that he's had with Putin. It seems like the compromise he's worked out is that he will ramp up production of ammunition and other stuff for the Russian war machine. But he did meet, Lukashenko did meet with Xi Jinping in China, and I'm wondering what that was about. Well, we know that the 10 point uh, so called peace plan that China offered up, nobody took that seriously. So, is it possible that Belarus could be a cutout for the Chinese support for Russia's war in Ukraine?
4: Well, Lukashenko meets with Xi Jinping because Russia, since this war started, is increasingly a Chinese client state, and Belarus is is a Russian client state to a great extent. So why not meet with, you know, the 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 boss is really in charge here. Um, Belarus is, you know, thousands of miles further to the West than Georgia. It is in that regard, much more in the center of Europe and a Putinist outpost in the center of Europe is very valuable. It's also very valuable to China. So Lukashenko has some real negotiating position uh, when he goes to China.
0: So why does Putin need him if he's just a sort of appendage or a puppet?
4: Well Putin needs whatever he can get right now, right? The so more he did, allies does he we...
0: want to take it over altogether in other words?
4: This is no, I, I don't think Putin wants to do in, Be- Ukraine, in Belarus what he's done in Ukraine, right? He has he this is not the reasons that he invaded Ukraine simply don't apply in Belarus. He what he wants from Belarus is ultimately will you send troops? Will you send munitions? Will you support us? Will you continue to trade with us? And the answer there is likely going to be, at least the latter part, yes, and to the first questions, maybe.
0: Well, that's what he's been dangling all along. But my understanding is he doesn't want to get militarily involved in Ukraine because he doesn't trust his own military. And most of it is is the Praetorian Guard, isn't it? They don't have much of a military.
4: No, but they can... But the soldiers who's... I mean, at this point in this conflict, Putin is not exactly sending you know, crack highly trained soldiers to Ukraine, right? These are conscripts who, I mean, it's it's, it's in some sense, it's heartbreaking, right? These are conscripts who have been brought in, they're, they're poorly trained, poorly equipped, and they've become cannon fodder um, while committing atrocities in Ukraine, tragically. And Belarus can certainly give those kinds of people to the war effort. That would be valuable to Putin.
0: So is it likely to happen then, do you think? In other words, you've got trouble in, in, in Georgia, you've got destabilization going on in Moldova, and you've got this tension between Putin and, and Lukashenko over how much he can squeeze him into committing troops. And, and the one thing that Lukashenko said is if there's one Ukrainian soldier crosses into the border, then it's the war begins. Well, that's a situation ripe for a false flag operation, isn't
4: it? For sure. And if Lukashenko wants this war with Ukraine, he'll have it. Right. If, if there's there's plenty of ways to make that happen. But again, you know, if you're him, you go, you want to talk to China. What are they going to do for you? Right. What do they want here? China. I mean, Putin in his in his effort to keep whatever threat Ukraine represented at bay has really lost a lot of influence uh, to China. And so. I think the extent, you know, there's there's two people that can end this war tomorrow. One is Putin and the other is Xi Jinping. And there's two people who can either expand this war or not expand this war. One is Putin and the other is Xi Jinping.
0: So is that to say then that to take a cynical view as opposed to a hopeful or even Pollyannish view that somehow China is going to be the honest broker here to end this war, which I don't think is a possibility, although China does have to consider the brand China, in terms of its exports and its European markets, but you're suggesting that the relationship is much deeper, and that's and I I would agree with you there. So, is I mean, China then therefore happy to have the U.S. and NATO bogged down in a European war, thinking that that might take the pressure off Americans' activities in the Pacific?
4: I might phrase that just a little differently. There has been a fair amount of coverage. or or analysis of this war that says this is a proxy war between the United States and Russia. And my view is that this is increasingly a proxy war between the United States and China. And the question is, how much more will China get pushed, pulled into this war? How much more do they want to get pulled into this war? What kind of weapons uh, will they send to Russia, right? How much support will they continue to to provide to Russia? How much trade will they continue to have with Russia? that's what I see as the key questions uh, as we move into the second year of this conflict
0: but that's going to change things enormously in particularly in a an election year because you've already got the pro Putin caucus operating with the freedom caucus in the house and they seem and more and more McCarthy and the Republicans are, are now talking about not giving Ukraine a blank check so that's that's building on the American side and it seems that that's you know a a, a, a significant problem here for Biden. But if if you start sanctioning China because of its overt support to Russia's war effort, and the Europeans might well follow, then you'll have supply chain problems in this country. Walmart shelves will suddenly be, become empty. The Republicans will be absolutely salivating over the idea that the economy is going to be hit, take a big hit. And it's going to help them re-elect, get reelected. And, and they don't seem to care about Ukraine. They just care about power. So uh, the, go ahead. Uh,
4: the scenario you've laid out is, is how this might play out. And that's, that's – but, but China understands that. And the Biden administration understand that, right? The United States sanctioning China is a qual- massively, as you suggested, a massively qualitatively different thing than sanctioning Russia. And as difficult as it was to get such strong European support for these sanctions on Russia, which really is, an, I think, an extraordinary diplomatic accomplishment by the president, and I have many criticisms of him, but you got to give Joe Biden credit for this, bring that kind of a coalition together to sanction China will be much, much more difficult. So if, you know, while, while the U.S. is warning China, don't, don't arm U- Russia, don't arm Russia – the leverage here is very different because the sanctions would be devastating for for both sides. I mean, I, I like to say that the U.S.-China relationship is, to pick a, a word from 2008, it's too big to fail, that bilateral relationship. And that's why this uh, hawkishness on China is, is, in my view, very dangerous. And I should add, not least because, you know— um, Mike like Pompeo, uh, the former Secretary of State who is running, who is essentially running for president, I think will be running soon on a campaign of let's go to war with China. And a war with China and the US should be unthinkable. And both sides are dancing up to that in ways that can be very frightening right now.
0: Yeah, but you just said, Lincoln, just in closing, that essentially the war in Ukraine is a proxy war with China.
4: That's right. And to to go back in history, during the Cold War, we had proxy wars with the Soviet Union, you know, kind of all over the globe. And we managed to, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but we didn't, they didn't lead to, millions of people died, right? Look at Vietnam, for example. But they didn't lead to all-out war between the two superpowers. And that, avoiding that has to be the top priority. But the, the hawkish, the hawkish, uh, so the, the China hawks in, in Washington are growing in power and the Washington the, and the U.S. hawks in, in, in Beijing have, have largely, hugely influential on in the CCP. So this could get much worse.
0: Well, Lincoln Mitchell, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. And even though the news is rather bad, I appreciate getting a perspective on the various fronts that we talked about, Georgia, Moldova, Belarus and Ukraine and China.
4: Thank you, and I know you don't bring me on your show for my optimism.
0: (laughs) Well, let's hope there's some reason to be optimistic. And again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.